Welcome back again, all you CHP listeners. Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast episode, the ninth in this series, where we're flying higher than an SR-71 to get a nice general overview of the history of Taiwan. We ended abruptly last time with your humble narrator reading excerpts from three eyewitness accounts of those two months in Taiwan's history that were so terrible. They got swept under the rug. And for decades to come, anyone attempting to lift up a corner of that rug and mention these events from February and March 1947 were made to wish they hadn't. So let's continue on with the history. We saw how, following the end of World War II and the defeat of Japan, the people living on the island of Taiwan, just as it had been following the Treaty of Shimonoseki, we're left with no option except to go along with events beyond their control. What ultimately ended up happening was, although Taiwan was technically never part of the Republic of China, when all the treaties were being signed, Taiwan ended up the way it did, part of the ROC. And we closed the last episode with the 228 incident that was preceded by a little over a year of outrages, one after the other, that in the eyes of the locals, would lead to a seething enmity that for many Taiwanese even continues on into our very own day. And right around here, people began to choose sides. Your sympathy and loyalties either resided with the KMT or they didn't. And the events in between retrocession day to the 228 incident and what followed provided plenty of oxygen for the scorching-hot revulsion directed against this political party founded by Sun Yat-sen so many years ago. So, Ambassador John Layton Stewart and reporters Tillman Durden and Peggy Durden, all their words got out into the public prints at once, and not just in the United States, of course. So all freedom-loving liberal democracies... Oh, look, scants at Chiang Kai-shek, and oh man, did he ever have a public relations disaster on his hands. Chun Yi and all the spin doctors went all out in order to style this whole 228 incident as an anti-government rebellion led by remnant pro-Japan elements, as well as Taiwan business and intellectual elites, and of course communists, leftists, and other anti-KMT troublemakers. For the time being... Chun Yi was a liability and at the same time a convenient scapegoat. On April 18th, Jiang yanked him out of the chief executive seat and replaced him with Wei Daoming. The Yanks, they sure loved that guy. Wei Daoming was respected. He had served as China's ambassador to the U.S. from 1942 to 1946, essentially the war years. As the ambassador to the U.S., Wei Daoming had been preceded by Hu Shi and succeeded by Wellington Ku, who I featured in a previous two-part series, CHB Episodes 214-215. When Madame Jiang, Song Mei Ling, when she came to the U.S. to give a pep talk or raise money for China's war effort, Wei Daoming was always at her side, managing her trips and appointments. So Wei Daoming replaced Chun Yi, becoming the first civilian governor of Taiwan as the chairman of the newly created Taiwan provincial government. And this new governing body, established May 16, 1947, was an attempt to shed some of the 
toxic slime that had attached itself to the Taiwan Provincial Administrative Office, previously headed up by Chun Yi. The Generalissimo knew he goofed by sending the 21st Division to Qi Long and all the looting and a shooting that transpired into the first two weeks of March 1947. So Jiang was going all out to ameliorate a situation that basically he caused. This was part of a coordinated campaign to mop up from the fallout of 228. Local elections were held that allowed Ban Cheng Ren, the native Taiwanese residents, to hold office, not on a national level, but at the local level, as long as they were KMT-friendly. Martial law was ended, freedom of the press was announced, within limits, of course, considering the times and all. But eh, let's not judge Jiang Kai-shek too harshly. By the summer of 1947, as all this was going on in Taiwan, the possibility of losing control of China wasn't as palpable as it would be the following year. Nonetheless, Jiang had to have known it was certainly a possibility. Anyway, Chun Yi had to lay low for botching everything that had happened since retrocession. But after serving 14 months in purgatory, Jiang later made him governor of Zhejiang. The greatest battle of the Generalissimo's entire military career was just getting underway in China's northeast. Nationalist generals Du Yuming and Chen Cheng were facing off against Lin Biao, battling for control of Manchuria. If Jiang lost Manchuria to the communists, it was going to be all over for the nationalists. And as we all know, Lin Biao came out on top in that conflict. And in December of that year, 1947, Mao had declared that the tide had turned and not in Jiang Kai-shek's favor. I don't want to get bogged down in all the events of the Chinese Civil War, or War of Liberation as it's also known. Just bear in mind that during these next couple years of 1947 and 1948, the nationalist government on the mainland was having an extremely rough time. More and more as the noose tightened around Jiang's neck, he began having this sneaking suspicion that he might be forced to retreat to Taiwan as a possible temporary place of refuge. So let's get back to Taiwan during Wei Daoming's short period as governor there. There was a struggle brewing. On the one hand, the nationalists were trying to make nice with the Taiwanese people by instituting all these measures that offered limited self-government and freedoms up to a certain point. But on the other hand, public enemy number one, as far as the nationalists were concerned, were all those lined up against them who sought independence from the nationalists. If the KMT was going to be defeated and driven from the mainland, they were going to need Taiwan as a place to regroup in order to turn right around and retake what they had lost. Therefore, in order to deal with this scenario that was looking more likely every month, the Taiwanese would have to line up with them or else... Despite all the massacres, political purges, and cold-blooded murder committed by KMT secret police against the CCP, they just couldn't decisively vanquish them. Now, beginning with the Liaoshan campaign, September 12 to November 2, 1948, the communists had turned the tables, capturing all of northeast China. Then came the Huaihai Campaign, November 6, 1948 to January 10, 1949, Shandong, Jiangsu, Anhui, and Henan. 
all fell to communist control. The final campaign that put all of China north of the Yangtze in communist control was the Pingjin campaign of November 29, 1948 to January 31, 1949. Communists took Beiping, Tianjin, and whatever territory in the Central Plain that they didn't have already. Even before these three great campaigns sealed the fate of the Chinese Civil War, for anyone on the mainland with the means or wherewithal, it was time for them to leave. August 1948, the Chinese Air Force started moving equipment and institutions to Taiwan. More than 50, 60 flights a day were flown between Taiwan and China. The worst-case scenario for the KMT was in full swing. One institution that got transplanted from the mainland to Taiwan was the 470-member legislative yuan that had been elected under the 1946 Constitution. For the next 40 years, these members would act as imaginary legislators representing all the provinces of China. Everyone knew this was all symbolic, but appearances had to be kept up. To do otherwise was to turn their backs on the whole idea of maintaining the Republic of China and retaking the mainland. Gold from the central bank was being loaded onto secret transport and being shipped to Taiwan. This precious metal would be used to back the new Taiwan dollar and to provide the seed capital to jumpstart the economy. November 10, 1948, the decision was made to transport artifacts from the National Palace Museum, National Central Library, and Academia Sinica's Institute of History and Philology to Taiwan. Jiang Jingguo was tasked with supervising this daring mission. Already in March 1948, contents from hundreds of museums throughout China were moved to Taiwan, as well as artifacts from the National Central Museum and Beijing Library. About 31, 32 centuries had passed since the age of King Wu Ding of the Shang Dynasty, and quite a bit had been painted, written, carved, and buried since then. 19,000 crates had been loaded and nailed shut, but under the circumstances, getting all that clandestinely shipped across the strait was near impossible. In the end, they managed to get about 3,800 crates shipped, less than a quarter of what they had hoped to take. But as any visitor to the Palace Museum in Taipei knows, this was the cream of the cream from 2,000 years of Chinese history. January 21, 1949, Jiang Kai-shek, always one with a flair for the dramatic, stepped down as president of the ROC as well as commander-in-chief of the military, naming Li Zongren as his successor. Jiang remained in charge of the KMT. April 1949 began the final assault south of the Yangtze. Within six months, all the nationalists had was Taiwan and a few bits and pieces in the south and southwest that would soon be lost. All that remained for the PRC was to take Hainan and Taiwan. By February 1950, Hainan was captured. One interesting note, and my man Shorty in Egan'stown could tell you all about this. After KMT General Lu Han defected to the communists, his 2,000 troops that he commanded in Yunnan marched across the border into the Shan State in Burma. Jiang Kai-shek sent his trusted general Li Mi to take charge of these troops. Li Mi kept up the pressure on the PRC border with Burma, at least for a while. 
As you recall from that Olive Young episode, they funded their anti-PRC activities through their involvement in the opium business. You know, there's a lot of wide-ranging estimates about the number of people who fled the mainland for Taiwan, Hong Kong, Macau, and other favorite destinations throughout Southeast Asia, Australia, North America, and Europe. And as far as how many came to Taiwan, most estimates lean in the direction of one and a half million people. We saw in the post-228 period how the scent of reform and reconciliation was in the air. The Taiwan economic miracle was still years and years into the future. Times were already tough on Taiwan. As I mentioned last episode, normal people who had never known such hardship were going to bed hungry at night. And now, each week, Tens of thousands of people were disembarking in Jilong and Kaohsiung by boat, or if they had the means, they were flying across the strait. And this did nothing to help the housing shortage and the local economy. Homes and office buildings abandoned by the Japanese after retrocession came in handy as an early stopgap measure to house some of the refugees, but these filled up fast. The whole migration of Chinese from the mainland to Taiwan is called the Great Retreat, the Da Che Tui, among other names. This began a period on Taiwan of de facto political independence from the Chinese mainland. Once Li Zongren returned empty-handed from the negotiations with the communists in April 1949, the numbers of troops and civilians heading for the emergency exits in the direction of Taiwan really picked up. By then, over 5,000 people per day were arriving. In the months following liberation on October 1st, 1949, the KMT was flying in as many troops to Taiwan as possible. And these million and a half people, by and large, well, overwhelmingly in fact, they spoke Mandarin or some other language than the Taiwanese spoken by the natives whose ancestors had brought with them from only a handful of places off the southern Fujian coast. And among these mainlanders who juiced up the island's population by 20%, they didn't speak much Hakka either. All of these mainland Chinese fleeing to Taiwan, well, not everyone came at once. Most of them arrived within a Eh, two to three year bandwidth. When the Japanese left, there were about six and a half million people on Taiwan. By 1950, that number was already close to eight million. So Chiang Kai-shek in 1949, not only did he get decisively defeated by the one group of Chinese he had been trying to wipe out since 1927, the USA had washed their hands of him. By February 1949, Uncle Sam decided to put his wallet back into his pocket. And for reasons we don't have to get into here, the deciders in the Truman administration opted to cut their losses as far as Jiang was concerned. That's when the Generalissimo knew this wasn't going to be the fairy tale ending that he was praying for. At this dark moment in his life, Jiang knew that Jig was up, and he needed to forestall the inevitable and get as many troops ferried across the strait, along with as much military equipment, gold bullion, and loyal KMT supporters as possible. U.S. government estimates pegged the dollar value of gold and other assets shipped to Taiwan during this time at about $300 million. That's $1949. 
A sizable chunk of that $300 million had been stashed away for years by Jiang in the event of anything happening that resembled what he was now going through. And over in China, Mao made no bones about it. He said the nationalists were defeated and the People's Republic was the successor state to the former ROC and what was once theirs now belonged to the PRC and that included Taiwan. And that's been a point of contention ever since. Well, in the middle of the night, December 10th, 1949, 2 a.m. to be exact, Jiang Kai-shek and his son, Jiang Jingguo, boarded a DC-4 in Chengdu, where he had made his last stand, and they flew to Taipei, arriving in the morning. This long, agonizing nightmare was finally over. The number of people left behind, loyal to the KMT to the very end, numbered in the hundreds of thousands. By the time these stragglers lined the docks of Shanghai and other ports of escape, it was too late. Time had run out for them, and they were left to fend for themselves. The communists showed them the same sympathy and understanding that the communists rounded up on Taiwan got. The PLA had rolled into Shanghai on May 25, 1949. It took 267 days between the moment Mao stood on Tiananmen and declared the founding of the PRC, and the day Kim Il-sung invaded South Korea. Though Chiang had his loyal supporters in the U.S. government and in the media still on his side, where it counted in the Truman administration, not everybody was so keen on him. Of course, as soon as the Korean War starts, Chiang makes an immaculate reception and all that past history with the Americans. Well, both sides let bygones be bygones. We'll get to all that soon. Actually, besides the China lobby folks, there were others in D.C. who really leaned on Secretary of State Dean Acheson and made accusations that, in so many words, said that by taking such an anti-KMT stance in his China policy, he was being soft on communism. By the way, the so-called China lobby in the U.S. was mainly funded by T.V. Song. Jiang's brother-in-law, and other influential politicians and businessmen. Like any lobbyist, they tried to use their access to decision-makers to influence the government to continue its unwavering support for Jiang's nationalist regime. Those lined up opposite the China lobby used this term as a pejorative that implied they were paid by the ones they spoke out for. And they were Fiercely anti-communist, which, you know, during the early 1950s was a prudent stance to take. The most famous member of the China lobby was Henry R. Luce of Time Life. Other notables were businessmen Alfred Kohlberg, Frederick C. McKee, and Congressman Walter H. Judd, as well as Senators William F. Noland and Joseph R. McCarthy. Wei Daoming only served as governor of Taiwan for a short time. In January 1949, he was succeeded by one of the major figures in both the Nationalist Army and in the government on Taiwan. This was Chen Cheng. Like Chen Yi, Chen Cheng was another Zhejiang guy. He came from Qingtian County, halfway between Wenzhou and Lishui. He went all the way back to the beginning with Chiang Kai-shek to the Wampoa Military Academy. Chun Chung fought against the warlords in the Northern Expedition, against the Japanese, and of course his age-old nemesis, the Communist Red Army. It was his 
fifth encirclement campaign against the CCP in Jiangxi that finally dislodged them from their Jingangshan stronghold and set them on their long march. So Jiang had sent Chen Cheng to Taiwan to whip the place into shape and get it all prepped and ready for the eventual arrival of the entire KMT government and military, lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. He was made the next governor, and he started instituting reforms and changes right away. Jiang made reform of the KMT his number one priority. In his heart, Jiang was thinking about a a kind of a benevolent dictatorship as the best way to go. Benevolent, yet a Leninist one-party state at the same time. And after so many defecting generals and officers who went over to the communist side, Jiang remained eternally vigilant for CCP moles within his ranks. At this point, he only trusted his family. Jiang knew Mao was going to invade Taiwan. So shoring up the island's defenses was another top priority task that had to be urgently addressed. And good thing, too. On October 25th, 1949, a confident Mao tried to invade Jinmen, or Kemoi, located 6.2 miles off the coast of Fujian. Jiang foresaw this and made sure to fortify the heck out of that place, mine the beaches, build a couple hundred bunkers, and make an amphibious landing about as dangerous and inconvenient as possible. And he put 40,000 hardened, battle-tested troops on Jinmen, ready to give it their all. Mao expected an easy cakewalk, and to say he grossly underestimated what he was up against is a rather large understatement. Around 2 in the morning, October 25th, two weeks after Mao had his magic moment on Tiananmen, PLA troops came ashore at Guningtou. I won't go into too much detail except to say the PLA troops were annihilated, and this was a bloody defeat. Mao sure got schooled by the Generalissimo there, and this Battle of Guningtou not only provided a much-needed boost to KMT morale, it very well might have impacted Mao's plans to invade Taiwan come the summer of 1950. He may have thought, if the PLA couldn't take Jinmen, what were their chances of taking all of Taiwan? As we get deeper into the 1950s, you'll hear more about this island of Jinmen. Even today, it's still occupied by the Republic of China. Go on Google Maps and see for yourself how close this island is to Xiamen. New government offices and the beginnings of Taiwanese representation in government had already started getting traction under Wei Daoming. Now it was up to Chen Cheng to provide the necessary leadership at one of the roughest times in Taiwan history. Summer of 1949, Chen Cheng launched land reform on Taiwan. A big chunk of the seized former Japanese agricultural lands were sold at subsidized prices to poor farmers. More than half of all land in Taiwan had been owned by the Japanese. 21% of all cultivatable land, too. So handing this land over to rural farmers did wonders for building a political base for the KMT in the countryside. Taiwanese elites, intellectuals, and city folk may have had nothing but contempt for the KMT, but out in the rural areas, eh, they hadn't fared too bad at all. Besides this main aspect of government land reform, selling public land to tenant farmers, 
rents paid to landlords was capped at 37.5% of the expected harvest. And this one other reform that was carried out under Chun Chung won the ire of many a landlord. And restricting the size of individual land holdings didn't win Jiang any admirers either from that class. In June 1949, the new Taiwan dollar, still around today, was introduced at 1 NT to 40,000 old Taiwan dollars. Stabilizing the currency was also a top priority for Jiang. In this respect, the early success of the NT dollar was one less headache for Jiang. He couldn't find any fault with Chun Chung's stewardship of this matter. Back in May 1949, Chun Chung had declared martial law in Taiwan. He's probably remembered most for this act that remained in force until July 14, 1987, a total of 38 years. At that time, Chun was both chairman of the Taiwan provincial government as well as the commander of the Taiwan Garrison Command. The Taiwan Garrison Command, though technically a branch of the military, was Taiwan's version of the Gestapo, Securitate, and Tantan Makuts. That is, they were the secret police. Their main job was to stop anything dead in its tracks that had even the faintest aroma of democracy, communism, or Taiwan independence. And they also went after elements of society who engaged in disturbing the peace, including looters and anyone who took advantage of the situation of the moment to prey on innocent citizens. It was initially set up right after the war in 1945 when the ROC capital was still located in Chongqing. Chun Yi ran it back then. In 1947, the garrison command was moved to Taiwan. And then in 1949, following the loss of the mainland, it was renamed the Taiwan Provincial Garrison Command. This was when Chun Chung was put in charge. Martial law had been declared in the wake of 228 in order to keep a lid on the protests. And one of the acts carried out by Wei Daoming was to end martial law. This was in uh, May 1947. But now, here things were two years later, and once again, martial law returned to Taiwan. The rules were pretty simple. No political parties allowed except the KMT, a necessity for any one-party dictatorship. There was, of course, political censorship, no criticizing the government openly, no right of assembly, peaceful or otherwise, no free speech, media publications couldn't use Hokkien. All standard, everyday fare for any dictatorial government concerned about being overthrown. The numbers of people caught up in this whole thing was estimated to be over 140,000, about the population of Gainesville, Florida. Of that number, there were about three, 4,000 executions. The rest were simply imprisoned, tortured, or made to suffer some sort of ghastly punishment for going against the KMT party line. And this period of repression on Taiwan was branded as the White Terror. So many white terrors in history. Against the Jacobins in France, 1794-95. In Russia, 1918-21. Bulgaria, Spain, Hungary. They too had theirs. And let's not forget the white terror that followed in China right after the Shanghai Massacre in 1927. Yeah, Chiang Kai-shek. He gets credit for not one, but two white terrors. Jiang was not feeling too happy and hopeful in between losing the mainland and the start of the Korean War. Over in America, a place he had such a love-hate relationship with, 
After George C. Marshall stepped down as Secretary of State, he was replaced by one of the most famous Chiang Kai-shek detractors, Dean Acheson. Acheson had publicly blamed the loss of China to Chiang's ineptitude, and much to the Generalissimo's chagrin, Acheson had not included Taiwan or South Korea as part of America's line of defense in the Pacific that stretched from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska all the way south to the Philippines. That action by the Secretary of State sure raised eyebrows in Moscow and Beijing. Jiang had no shortage of detractors in the U.S. government, but he also had many allies who stood up for him. By the end of 1949, he was getting positive signals from his friends in the U.S. The message was, if he would only commit to more positive reforms on Taiwan, you know, the kind that American politicians like to see, there was still a chance the U.S. government might get behind him. Chiang remained optimistic that Uncle Sam would come around and reverse course on their abandonment of the KMT and their refusal to support Chiang militarily. Later on, in March 1950, Chun Chung succeeded the old Shanxi warlord and now KMT stalwart Yen Shishan as premier. The once model warlord had left his stronghold in Taiyuan along with the Shanxi provincial gold reserves. The role of the premier of the Republic of China it was more ceremonial than executive, even though he was the leader of the executive Yuan. The premier mainly serves as an advisor to the president and as the highest-ranking civil servant in Taiwan. And remember Chen Yi? Ooh, he didn't have a good end. Jiang never forgave him for all the fallout from 228 that happened under his watch. As I mentioned before, he was made governor of Zhejiang, but only served eight months. Towards the end of 1948, Chen Yi started to have a change of heart about how things were going on the mainland. It was obvious by then that things were not going in favor of the nationalists and was only a matter of time before they were crushed. So he began to soften towards the communists and thought, eh, maybe he could cut a deal with them. He released communist prisoners rather than executing them. And finally, in January 1949, he had tried to convince Tang Unbo, one of his protégés, to give it all up and surrender to the communists. Tang, one of Jiang's primary generals, who will also end up as another victim of Jiang's paranoia, snatched Chun Yi and brought him to Taiwan to face an angry Jiang. Chun Yi suffered through a year of interrogation and jail before being executed on Paul McCartney's eighth birthday, June 18, 1950. Aside from his dislike and mistrust of Chun Yi, Executing him in such a public manner was, in a way, throwing a bone to the Taiwanese, who held Chun Yi in such contempt for his actions from 1945 to 1947. A massive purge followed in the wake of Chun Yi's execution. Jiang signed off on the purge of some of the most corrupt and ineffective officials, and this was meant to be some kind of a show of contrition to the local Taiwanese. Winning back their trust remained an uphill battle all the way up until the day he died in 1975, a year before his nemesis, Mao Zedong. Again, I want to reiterate that 1949-1950, this whole idea about regrouping on Taiwan to organize and then return to take back the mainland was still very real to many. In time, of course, this idea would 
slowly start to fade. But in those years immediately following October 1st, 1949, it was practically a given that the Nationalists would go back and retake the mainland. Later on, we'll look at the Guoguangji Hua, Project National Glory, the most serious attempt by the Nationalists to reconquer the mainland. And also, 1949-1950, just like in our times with Presidents Xi and Putin, Mao was making similar statements about the USSR and Stalin regarding the mutual commitments the two neighboring countries had for each other. When the Soviets blew off their first atomic bomb on August 29, 1949 in northeast Kazakhstan, oh, that did wonders for stoking the fires of the Cold War. That and the February 1950 Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship, Alliance, and Mutual Assistance. So let's take stock of the situation before we dive into the Korean War, known also as the 625 War and the Resisting America and Assisting Korea War. The U.S. was riding high in 1950, enjoying that post-war economic boom, spending all that treasure to make the world safe for democracy. Other than the China lobby, who seemed to have this fixation on supporting Jiang, Madame Jiang, and the entire KMT regime, the Generalissimo didn't have too many fans in the U.S. government. Keep in mind, throughout the 1950s, in the United States at least, the hatred of communism and anything resembling that ideology ran pretty hot. I myself was born a couple years after Senator Joseph R. McCarthy died, so... I missed out on the golden age of McCarthyism, but as a young kid during the Beatlemania years, I remember loud and clear all the anti-communist, anti-Soviet Union, and anti-Red China propaganda. And one other thing, even though U.S. policy dictated no more military assistance and economic aid for Jiang and the KMT regime, Unofficially, plenty of military equipment and ammo was being clandestinely funneled to Jiang via retired U.S. Army and naval officers who were working behind the scenes without State Department knowledge. In early February 1950, after Li Zongren made it clear he wasn't going to be returning from sick leave in the United States where he was receiving medical treatment, Jiang decided to resume being president of the ROC. And then, all of a sudden, in May 1950, Kim Il-sung started getting ready to invade South Korea. June 25th, Kim invaded. And June 27th, Truman ordered the 7th Fleet to start heading to the Taiwan Strait in order to prevent Mao from attempting to cross the Taiwan Strait and carry out a regime change. This was quite a reversal from what Truman had said in January 1950 about not getting involved in any civil war between the KMT and the CCP. At the same time, the Americans were demanding that the ROC cease all military operations directed against the PRC. In the spring of 1950, despite the beating he took at Guningto on Jinmen, Mao had already begun to plan his own invasion of Taiwan. Because Jiang took the Chinese Navy with him when he went to Taiwan, it left the PLA having to improvise. But Mao's invasion got preempted by Kim Il-sung. This is argued by scholars and experts, of course, but had Mao invaded Taiwan first before Kim invaded South Korea, it's likely the U.S. would have just sat on its hands and let it happen. The North Korean invasion 
through a wrench in the U.S. machinations to remove Jiang. As I said, the voices that mattered in D.C. didn't like that guy, and they had been jonesing to replace him. Sun Li Ren was a favorite choice. Right after North Korean forces invaded, Jiang had publicly stated that the instigator behind this Korean conflict was the USSR. And he further predicted Mao would send Chinese troops to fight against UN forces. And this is exactly what happened. And the Korean conflict changed the dynamic as far as Taiwan was concerned. Not to mention Jiang Kai-shek and his whole KMT regime. After the Korean War, in the eyes of the American military and major political figures, Jiang Kai-shek wasn't so bad looking anymore. It was a new era in a polarized world. Today, this is old hat. We're all experts in the fine points of global polarization. But in the early 1950s, with the novelty of nuclear weapons, missiles, and jet engines, it was a scary time. People were learning how to duck and cover. And with that, I'm going to once again exercise the powers vested in me to end this episode right here and now. Next time in part 10... We'll continue on with the aftermath of the Korean War and see how Taiwan went from a place given up for dead by the U.S. to becoming an unsinkable aircraft carrier, as General Douglas MacArthur called the place. All for next time. Until then, all you good-looking CHP listeners, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the lovely town of Los Angeles in the state of California. Please please me and consider coming back next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.